Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, as always, he is the man who played The Professor in the Fox TV series That 70s Show, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing very good. You know, when you say The Professor... When you said the professor, of course, the, I played professors and teachers so many times, but I really relate that particular part with uh, one of the really hot sex scenes I ever had in a in a TV show, in that I got to make out with Donna in the '70s show, and I remember <laughs> that was we were at uh, dress rehearsal, and I was grabbing. I, I played her her teacher at school that she was maybe going to have an affair with, and. Uh, I started kissing her on the couch, and then I kind of threw her on the kitchen table, and the producer said, uh, Stephen, uh, hold it. Uh, Stephen, um, we think that's kind of excessive. Uh, that may be bad taste. In fact, just don't touch her. <laughs> don't touch her at all. And I was saying, but it said in the script, Stephen, don't touch her at all. <laughs> so uh, that was... Uh, <laughs> That was one of my my few moments, David, where I was able to show my passion. Do you know what I else? Got shot down, yeah. You know what else I'd also describe as excessive and in bad taste? That entire description of that role that you just uh, that you just gave <laughs> us just now. Well, anyway, to, ch- to change the subject, Stephen, uh, we're we are recording this uh, around holiday time, and this is a time where a lot of people gather with their families, uh, and whether for good or for bad. And a lot of times when I when I hang out with my parents these days, uh, I I think back to I believe it was episode four of the Tobolowski Files, The Alchemist, and I remember something you said that has resonated with me from then until this day, and that is that you don't choose your memories. Oftentimes, uh, your memories choose you. Isn't that correct? Wow, David, great! Wow. That's true. That's true. That's a great call. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. In fact, um, if I were to draw a big pie graph of life, I would say that it's made up kind of of two moments, the ones you can't remember and the ones you never forget. And this story, The Stranger, is about both. Now, David, you would assume, right, that a person would remember what was important to them and toss away what's not. Indeed. I would assume that, but uh, not always the case. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's true. And I think we are shaped equally by what is important and what is forgotten. I think the things we never forget become our stories, and the things we can't remember become our doubts. One thing for sure. As imperfect as they are, our memories, spoken or unspoken, turn out to be our only constant companions. Considering how important memories are, you would think that our vision of things in the past would be even-handed. Well, I know that's not the case. I have a lot more memories of my mother from my childhood than my father. And I'm sure it's simply a function of proximity. My dad was a doctor pediatrician, so he's always at the office working, whereas mom was our cook, our maid, our chauffeur, our confidant. But David, I do have one memory of my father. It's a moment that's as vivid and as present as if it happened this morning. I was 12 years old, 
It was a Sunday afternoon. Now, I know it was a Sunday afternoon because that was the day Dad always went to the hospital to check on newborns. And it was also the day Mom and I always watched Hercules movies on TV. Slight digression. Even though these movies were clearly Hercules movies made in Italian and dubbed in English, Mom always called them Henry movies. The derivation of the term Henry came from the very first Sunday afternoon we discovered these movies on TV, and the first film we saw together in this time slot was not a Hercules movie, but was some kind of French musketeer movie, and the hero's name was Henry. Now, Mom and I had never seen a dubbed movie before, and Mom always laughed whenever the heroine sighed and said, Oh, Henry, because it was the only time the voice matched the picture, which amused her no end. And by the, end of the, by the end of the movie, Mom was laughing so hard she was in tears. And so the next week, the station started airing their apparent endless catalog of Hercules movies. And Mom <laughs> came down to my room and said, Steppy Doors, it's time for a Henry movie. And off I would go. Why she continued to call Henry movies Henry movies is part of the absolute incomprehensibility of Mom's mind. But decades later, when I did Bossa Nova, uh, directed by Bruno Barreto, we shot that in Rio de Janeiro, I remember I told mom that I was working with Amy Irving in an all-Brazilian cast, and she asked me if the movie was going to be in English or if it was going to be a Henry movie. If mom liked an idea, she stuck with it. Anyway, back to my memory. Mom and I were watching a Henry movie, and dad came in from the hospital. He stopped in the middle of the den his face was flushed. Without waiting for a commercial break, he announced to the room at large, Today I know why I became a doctor. I just saved a baby's life. A newborn was sick. Nobody knew what was wrong with him, but I knew. I knew, and I got him the right medicine, and I saved him. Everything I studied, every patient I've ever seen, made sense today. Now, my father was not a man prone to being openly emotional. It was partly a sign of the times. The only man who was openly emotional in the early 60s was Lou Costello. The dad was also a product of being raised in a small house in the 1920s, 1930s with nine brothers and sisters. He always had a fire burning inside, but he had to keep it to himself. But this afternoon, he was clearly moved. He spoke about saving that baby's life with a combination of dignity and surprise. It was the surprise that got me. I never forgot that moment. And years later in junior high school, I told Dad that I wanted to become a doctor. No, 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 not because I wanted to be around sick people or even save a baby's life. But I think it was because I wanted to feel that moment. The moment of suddenly being surprised by the value of my own life. A year ago, I was visiting Dallas. Recently, Dad had lost two of the most precious things in his life, his eyesight and Mom. One evening after dinner, <laughs> we were watching Deal or No Deal, a program equally effective with or without vision. At commercial, Dad asked me what I remembered from the old days. And I reminded him of that Sunday when he came home from the hospital and told us about the baby he saved. Dad shook his head and said, I don't remember that at all. I was shocked. 
I couldn't imagine that Dad would not remember that day of all days. Now the meaning of my memory had changed. From one of heroism a doctor felt at being at the right place at the right time to save a baby's life, to the story of a man who forgot the moment when he felt his purpose. Both stories are gigantic. At first it scared me that an event like that, and all that it meant could vanish, but later that night as I lay in bed listening to a radio show on lawn equipment, I got the idea that maybe that Sunday afternoon 40 years ago wasn't meant to be a treasured memory for my father, but for me. From that day on, I knew my father had saved a life, and it changed the way I saw him in the world, and it became a part of my act one. It was one of the things that shaped me. I think all of us long for a good act one. We needed to remember when we hit act two and everything gets turned on its head. We're always calculating and recalculating the story of our life. You would think it would be easy. I mean, after all, you only need a beginning, a middle, and end. And I found the greatest difficulty is not with content, but with organization. I never have a good outline. Whenever I think I finish my rising action, I'm headed for a big conclusion, then suddenly I see that I'm really at the beginning again. I've started a new act one, and I don't even know the characters. When I went to do Bird on a Wire in Vancouver, Anne was eight months pregnant. I had just finished five films in a row and had another one lined up afterwards. And it was very easy for me to think of that trajectory of my early years were now making sense. And I was reaching some kind of triumphant conclusion, the long and satisfying act three called The Successful Career of Stephen. If I were writing a screenplay of my life up to this point for the Disney Channel, I'd start the swelling music. The young Tom Hanks, who I had cast to play me, would be kissing a huge pregnant Anne, played by Anne. I mean, it's hard enough for women to get jobs in this town. I'm not going to recast her now. And as I head off for a new adventure in Canada, I, or Tom, delivers the final speech to her with my hand on her enormously huge stomach, with eyes filled with tears, Tom, or me, says, Just think, kiddo. When I come back, we will be three. A kiss, laughter, tears, more laughter, music fade, and scene! But as a rule, we never have the act three of our choosing. I went to Canada. Instead of triumph, on the first day of shooting, I was almost fired. Then Rob Cohen, the producer, asked me if I was able to swim. This was an interesting subject, slightly random. I started telling him about my adventures on the YMCA swim team. And as his eyes started to glaze over, I had the intuition that Rob was not really interested in the why. And then he made what I thought was a strange left turn in the conversation. And he asked if I had a fear of fish. I told him no. In fact, I ate them regularly. Then he popped the question. He asked me if I was willing to switch deaths with Bill Duke. You see, all of the bad guys in Bird on a Wire were going to be killed at a zoo in the final scene. Bill was supposed to be eaten by piranhas, but Bill couldn't swim, and he preferred to be murdered by a different animal. If I agreed to switch, I would have a fist fight with Mel Gibson and then be eaten alive. 
I was thrilled. I agreed. This was a huge step up in my career. I called Ann that night to tell her. I said, Annie, I've got good news. Ann, who's always happy when she hears that I'm happy, says, what, what? Tell me what's going on. I said, baby, the end of this movie has changed. Now I'm going to have a fist fight with Mel Gibson and be eaten alive by piranhas. Pause. Anne was apparently grappling over my definition of good news, but she just said, that doesn't seem safe. I was frustrated by her not jumping on board the enthusiasm bandwagon. I said, honey, it's a movie. And she said, exactly, it's a movie. Think who you're dealing with. These people are from Hollywood. I realized she had a point. I said, Anne, look, I can swim, and they're certainly not going to use real piranhas. Anne said, Stephen, how do you know that? You're not the star. That's why they have insurance. Suddenly, I thought about my first day of shooting and what I overheard our director, John Badham, saying to Mel Gibson that I was the worst actor he had ever worked with and how he was itching to replace me. I was definitely expendable. Anne was right. But would they make me fish food? No. Not even people from Hollywood would do that. Or would they? I told Anne I would square away the safety issues with Rob Cohen the next day. I met with Rob on the set and said, hey, hey, you know, hey, Rob, you know, I just wanted to make everything was going to be cool, you know, with the water and the fish. Rob laughed and said, absolutely, Stephen. I was just about to talk to you. I wanted to let you know everything will be perfectly safe. And don't even say it. You're worried about the fish? Don't have to be. We're flying in a special breed of vegetarian piranhas from the Amazon. Pause. I stared at Rob. Rob stared at me. It was like liar's poker without the poker. As a lover of the animal planet, I knew there was no such thing as a vegetarian piranha. This was Hollywood talk. They were going to feed me to the fish. I said, Rob, what if they think I'm a carrot? Rob chuckled and said, hey, I promise they're going to be more afraid of you than you are of them. And in that one moment, I realized my ultimate safety was dependent on the fish having a dislike for kosher meat. Rob told me all the details with delight. They were going to drop me into a tank of water eight feet deep in with the vegetarian piranhas. He said everything was certainly going to be cool because the water had to be kept at 64 degrees or the fish would get sick. The fish would get sick. They were going to sew in 35 pounds of lead weight into my pants so I would sink quickly to the bottom and stay in one place. That would allow maximum shooting time. They were going to have mechanical piranhas that were wired to swim in and bite off prosthetic pieces of my face and hands with squirting blood. Rob patted me on the back and said that if any time I felt like I was drowning or experiencing hypothermia, I could signal and a frogman would jump in and save me. I started to experience a sort of buyer's remorse. Maybe this wasn't the big career boost I thought it was going to be. I would pass Bill Duke on the set, and he would look at me and shake his head and just giggle. Special effects experts took me to a warehouse and asked me if I was claustrophobic or had breathing problems. Just the question alone brought on late-onset asthma. I suddenly felt like the walls were closing in. I needed Bill Duke's phone number. They said, hey, they're going to make a mold of my head and hands to make fake flesh the fish would feast on. Yeah, try saying that three times fast. 
They stuck straws up my nose and told me I would have to be motionless for about 25 or 30 minutes. I should mention that I have made a body cast since then, and it took about 60 seconds. So we're talking about this is in the dark age of movie prosthetics. So after the straws were up my nose, they encased my head in a thick, warm, wet mass, like 15 pounds of Aunt Jemima pancake mix. But it was not totally unpleasant. It was a lot like sniffing airplane glue with the sleeping cat on your face. They explained the liquid would heat up and may contract as it hardened. If I felt at any point I was suffocating, give them a thumbs-up sign and they get the mask off pronto. Everything was fine for about the first 30 seconds. Then I felt the mask getting hotter and hotter and tighter and tighter. My sight was gone. My hearing was gone, except for the sound of my heart which was getting louder and louder in my ears. I was hyper-conscious of the straws jammed up my nose. They were my lifeline. I was slowly becoming an Edgar Allan Poe short story. After ten minutes, I was consciously trying to stay calm. A sudden alarming thought made my heart speed up, resulting in it banging in my head like a timpani drum. As the mix got harder, my head was getting squeezed from all sides. After twenty minutes, I was losing my mind. And then came disaster. One of the straws got crunched and displaced by the tightening mask. No more air on that side. My heart sped up. I couldn't slow it down. I was having a full-bore panic attack. I flipped out. I gave the signal. I raised my thumb. Thumbs up. Nothing. No rescue. My heart was about to explode. I couldn't breathe. My thumbs went up higher, 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 higher. Thumbs up. Nothing. Nothing. And then hands came in and started to remove the mask. It came off. I gulped air. I said, where were you guys? I gave you the signal. My technician said, well, I thought you were just telling us you were all right. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you were showing us thumbs up. I screamed, you were the one who told me to use thumbs up if I was dying. He thought about it for a second. Oh, right. He turned to his partner and said, you know, we should change the signal. He turned back to me sheepishly and said, Sorry, but you were almost finished anyway. We didn't want to put you through that again. On the day of the shoot, it took five hours to put the makeup on and the wires controlling the fake fish. I dropped into the tank for as long as I could hold my breath, say, 45 seconds. I screamed in terror. I flailed, but the special effects people pushed the wrong button, and instead of the fish flying in to attack my face, my face flew off and attacked the fish. They call cut. I came out of the water freezing and wet. It took two hours to take the makeup off, another five hours to put it on again, and 45 seconds in the tank. This time the fish attacked, but they couldn't swim away. They just dangled from my face, making me look like I was wearing strange earrings I bought at the 99-cent store. Rob Cohen said, Stephen, how about one more take? I shot for a total of 21 straight hours without food or water because my face and hands were covered with bloody rubber fish. We ended up with about 10 seconds of quality screen time depicting my curious death. There's an old joke in show business that's attributed to several actors and writers on their deathbed from Shaw to Oscar Wilde to Edmund Gwynn. The dying artist is asked sympathetically if dying is hard. They respond, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. My slight addendum, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. But pretending to die in a tank of water with lead weight in your pants, that's even harder. 
When you do a night shoot, the world is turned upside down. You start work at sunset, you have lunch at 1 a.m. The day before, you try to nap. So I was just waking up about 4 p.m., getting ready for a 9 p.m. call. And out of the blue, I get a ring from one of my fellow actors, Jeff Corey. At this time in his career, Jeff was more famous for being one of the premier acting teachers in Los Angeles than for his work as an actor in movies. He wanted to know if I was free to grab some dinner before the shoot. I hadn't spent much time with Jeff, so I thought, hey, no time like the present. He asked me at dinner how things were going, and I told him about the fight with Mel and being eaten alive by fish. He laughed and shook his head, and he said, you know, it's crazy what we do for a living. And there are people all over the world who'd like nothing better than to switch places with us. While Jeff spoke, I was drawn into his eyes. They were filled with intelligence and with something else, something wild, something joyful at the same time. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. He then asked me about my life. I told him about Annie at home, nine months pregnant, looking like she was 18 months pregnant, And Jeff's eyes filled with tears, and he smiled, and he said, My goodness, you're just about to start. I said, Start what? He said, Everything. It's all about to change for you. I said, I figured. Jeff laughed again and shook his head. He said, No, you didn't. You can't. Everything you know about love changes when you have a baby. The way you experience your life changes. The way you look at your wife, Anne, will change when you know she's the mother of your child. Everything. We sat in silence. I suddenly couldn't digest. I'm sure I looked terrified. Jeff was grinning like a madman. And finally I said, do you have any advice? Jeff nodded and leaned forward and whispered. There are only three things you need to know about being a parent. Hold them. Hold them. Hold them. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to remember. In that moment, I understood the thing about Jeff I couldn't quite put a name on before. For Jeff, life was not an acquired taste. He loved it all. The pain, the mess, the love, the kindnesses. I wished in that moment I had known him my whole life. But in the end, this was the only conversation we would ever have. I went back to my hotel room and pulled out a book of New York Times crossword puzzles I used to pass the time on the set with. I opened the book to the puzzle I was currently working on, and in the margin I wrote, Hold them, hold them, hold them. Jeff Corey. To remember that dinner and remember the words that sounded like a lesson learned by experience. That evening we were shooting one of those scenes that looks easy on paper. Mel has to run for his life down a street with us bad guys chasing him. Whenever an actor sees a scene like that on the call sheet, they know it means wind sprints at two in the morning. We were shooting in a real house in a Vancouver neighborhood. It was around midnight. Mel and I were sitting on the floor waiting to do something and were talking, just passing the time. I told him about Annie, pregnant, back in Los Angeles. Mel smiled and talked about the birth of his last child. They delivered in his home with friends and family all around, playing the piano. He wanted the baby to be born with music so he would know he was coming. 
into a beautiful place. Mel said as soon as the baby was born, he waltzed with him across the living room. I told a man and I were probably just going to stick with plan A, you know, show up at the maternity ward at the hospital. Anne's due date was still a couple weeks away, but it was nervous time. Mel laughed and said, hey, nothing to be nervous about. It's just the greatest thing in the world. I said, that's what everyone says. I just didn't know what they meant. Mel said, no one ever does, but you will be in a long line of people who didn't know what it meant or what they're doing. And one day you'll look at someone else, like I'm looking at you, and say the same thing I just told you, and you still won't have a clue, like I still don't have a clue. What the hell am I talking about? We all laughed. They called us in to rehearse the chase part of the scene. So Mel runs out of the house, runs down the street. We follow him. Simple. John Batham, our director, said we could take another break while they set up the lights. Lighting at night is always a challenge and seems to take longer than anyone expects, so it was about 2 a.m. before we were ready to shoot. They called action. We tore out of the house. Everything worked like a charm. We shot a couple takes. Everything seemed fine. I wasn't sure what the variables were of us running down a dark street, wearing dark clothes in the middle of the night, but there was a conference by the video playback machine. John said he wanted to change a couple things and do one more take. We went inside for a few minutes, and then we heard the familiar, ready and action, and we were off to the races. I noticed something was definitely different this take, but I couldn't figure out what it was until I hit the street. They had hosed down everything, made it wet to make it look good on camera. As soon as my shoe hit that wet concrete, I flew up in the air. I commenced a 30-foot slide that carried me across the street on my rump. The wet pavement was kind of like a death race version of Whammo slip and slide. I eventually flipped on my side, started rolling like a sausage that fell off the grill. I probably was still have been rolling except I hit a parked car. Everyone was yelling, cut, cut, cut. I got up. I was fine. One of the ADs started yelling, hold up, Stephen. We're going to get you to the hospital. I was amazed at the level of concern. I modestly assured them that I was fine. There was nothing hurt but my pride. Mel ran over to me to see how I was. The AD shouted they were getting a car. It was on the way, and they would even call for a helicopter if need be. I was blushing. I went into an improvised speech on the rough-and-tumble life of an actor and how you have to roll with the punches, so to speak. And the AD finally said, Stephen, will you shut up? We just got a call from Los Angeles. Your wife's water broke. She's gone into labor. We're going to get you to the hospital. Pause. I stood there dumbstruck. Mel looked at me, patted me on the back, smiled and said, Good luck. Try the waltz. The movie company bought me a ticket and had me heading back to Los Angeles at dawn. On the flight, I realized that even though my life was speeding ahead of me, I had fallen back into the moment before zero once more. The moment that redefines everything you are and everything you do. I was at the beginning of a new act one. It took me 38 years to understand that in life, you only tell the story. You don't write it.
I got into town mid-morning and rushed to the hospital. It was kind of a good news, bad news sort of thing. The good news was I made it on time. The bad news was it was a very busy day at the maternity ward and Anne had been wheeled into a closet. This wasn't exactly the way they described it on the hospital tour. I moved some mops around, came in and kissed her hello. She looked beat, but relieved I had made it. Eventually, Anne was rolled into a regular room. They hooked her up to several monitors. Anne's doctor walked in. She was a short, feisty redhead. I think we picked her because she reminded me of Anne. She was tough, no nonsense, no quit in her, and frankly... I wanted a woman figuring she may have some inside information on this reproductive thing. The doctor checked out Anne and said she was just starting to dilate. The contractions were only two minutes apart. It still could be a while. And then the doctor tossed off a joke and said, that's why they call it labor. I guess that qualifies as A material in the maternity ward. The doctor left, and Anne was hit with another powerful contraction. She was taking the pain and then said through gritted teeth, I got to get up. This is wrong. It's not supposed to be like this. And she undid her seatbelts and monitors and jumped out of bed and started stomping her feet like a sumo wrestler. She smiled and said, This is it. This is better. Much better. Apparently, the hospital staff didn't think so. Two nurses came rushing in when they saw Anne's monitors flatlining. They were relieved when they saw that she was just doing a modified rain dance. They told her to get back into bed. Anne tried to bargain with them. She said she would put all the monitors on again if they would just let her stand up. The nurses said it was against hospital policy. All mothers had to lie down. They strapped her down again. Anne was exhausted, looked up to me to be some sort of advocate. Unfortunately, I didn't know what that meant back then. Instead, I asked the nurses where the cafeteria was and told Anne I was going to run down and get a bite before the real action started. Anne helplessly nodded and sent me on my way. I headed down to the sad-looking cafeteria and had a piece of fried chicken. I even thought about finding a chair to catch a quick nap. Instead, I strolled back slowly to the maternity floor. I was having a bit of a reverie that this was the last day of my life. I would just be me. Every day from now on, I would be someone's father. But whose? It started to creep me out that I had no idea who this other person was or what they would look like. I was about to devote a life to a stranger. This whole thing was crazy. And then my stream of consciousness was interrupted by Ann's doctor saying, Well, there you are. We were looking for you. I thought you were going to miss it. Hurry up. We're having a baby. I ran back into the room. Anne looked at me and mustered a smile. She said knowingly, the stomping did it. I looked down and whoa, a head was trying to come out of Anne. It was the stranger. Now I understood the madness of Jeff Corey's eyes. I saw it all clearly. Our lives are a movie. Just no one told us it was science fiction. We rushed into the delivery room. I knew Anne was part X-Man. I had no doubt she would come through this with flying colors. Two pushes and the head and one shoulder were all the way out. I turned my head sideways and bent down to get a better look at our stranger. He looked like a 1,000-year-old man. Check that. A very unhappy 1,000-year-old man. 
Our doctor said, one more big push and you're done. Anne took a huge breath and roared. Her head turned purple. The veins in her neck started to bulge. She looked like the Hulk in mid-transformation. She let out another scream and the baby shot out of her like a football. The doctor caught it and fell back a couple feet from the force. I was in shock. Anne was gulping for air. The baby started crying. The doctor handed me some scissors to cut the umbilical cord. I did it. I was looking around to see if John Carpenter was lurking around somewhere with the camera. The doctor asked what the baby's name was. I told her Anne and I had not decided yet. The doctor looked at us like we were bad children who hadn't done our homework. She said, well, that's fine for now, but you'll need a name for the paperwork before you leave. They put the baby on Anne's stomach to keep it warm for a second. Anne had another contraction, and the placenta came tumbling out. No one had ever told me about the placenta. I wasn't warned. It was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. It was beautiful, iridescent, shimmering. It looked like some magical thing from the bottom of the sea. Anne was crying. She looked up at me and said, Can I see? Can I see? And so I took the dish that had the placenta in it and put it under her chin. Anne looked up at me dumbfounded. Not this. The baby. I'd like to see the baby. Oh, sorry. I took the dish with the afterbirth away and put the baby up on her chest. He immediately started to suckle. And Anne started laughing. And I couldn't help but think of Sarah in the Bible, naming her child Isaac, which means laughter. Ah, maybe we should call him Isaac. The nurse was smiling at the scene, which I'm sure she'd seen hundreds and hundreds of times. After the baby stopped drinking, she said to me quietly, Now it's time for the father to wash the baby. I almost burst with pride. I was going to wash my son. I picked him up gently. I took him over to the sink in the recovery room. I put him down on the counter, and he looked up at me with that sad old face. And I felt like he was trying to say something to me. And I stared down into his dark eyes, and I got it. I got it. He was telling me it was too bright and the lights in the room were hurting him. So I quickly put my hand like a visor over his forehead, shading his eyes. The distress in his face vanished. Our eyes met again, and I saw a look of powerful intelligence, of something beyond anything I'd ever seen in a human face. I trembled a little bit and whispered to Anne, I think he just said thank you. He thanked me, and I bent down to his face and whispered, Any time. The nurse leaned into my reverie and told me, Turn on the faucets, get the water nice and warm, not too hot, not too cold. I did. I started washing, and the baby started screaming bloody murder. I started screaming. The nurse was looking over my shoulder, still smiling. I panicked and asked what I was doing wrong. She comforted me and said, nothing. This is normal. They hate it. That's why we always get the fathers to do it. We don't want the babies mad at the mother now, do we? We went back to the recovery room. I sat with Anne and little no-name. The nurse told me it was time to change his diaper. Babies get rid of something called meconium when they're born. It's black and has the consistency of hot tar, and I believe its purpose is to alert new parents as to how awful the next couple years are going to be. I checked, and indeed, he needed a change. 
Never has a diaper change been done with more delicacy. I would have used gloves, goggles, and tongs if they were available. The suspense was terrific. It was like a scene from The Hurt Locker defusing a bomb. The nurse asked Anne if she was going to breastfeed. Anne said, absolutely. The nurse rolled her eyes and said, that's what they all say. Okay, here are the rules. It's hospital policy. If the mothers decide to breastfeed, the babies have to nurse at least once every four hours, day and night. If they don't, the baby will be given a bottle. Anne said, but what if he's not hungry? The nurse shook her head like a warden in a female prison movie. Every four hours, awake or sleep, day or night, or he gets the bottle. We rested through the night. I woke up and put Isaac No Name on Anne's breast just as the nurse stuck her head in, holding a bottle. I pointed to the baby, having his midnight snack. The nurse slipped out, disappointed. Apparently, the hospital was not aware they were dealing with actors who were used to working at night under difficult conditions. I passed out in the chair they had in the room until morning. Then I heard noise and sensed movement. I opened my eyes. It was Anne. She was dressed out of bed and was cleaning the room. I repeat, she was cleaning the room. I knew she was a low-level X-Man, but this was ridiculous. I asked her how she was doing. She said she hurt, but it wasn't going to get any better lying around all day. There was a quiet knock at the door. I went to get it. It was Bob, my best friend and sage the man who I acted with in Buffalo and St. Louis, the man who advised me on the nature of a broken heart when I parted with Beth, the man who taught me how to play Scrabble and how not to take barroom bets. We had learned last year that Bob had a very aggressive form of brain cancer. He just had surgery, not for a cure, but just for some relief. It was not successful. His right side had gotten very weak, and it was difficult for Bob to walk at this point. The ex-Marine Bob took this in stride. However, the ex-actor Bob often cried that he would never be able to do another play. It was fitting that my dearest friend was our first visitor. He had lost a good deal of weight, but was still in good humor. He came into the room and hugged me. Congrats, bro. He turned and kissed Anne. Good job, Annie. Let me see that little sucker. Anne led Bob to the crib. He looked down at No Name and said, well, I've seen a lot of kids, but this guy is beautiful. I mean, his face is kind of beat up a little, but you got to figure out where he just came from, right? He bent down and kissed No Name and whispered, Hey there, fella. You worked so hard getting out, now you're going to be spending the rest of your life trying to get back in. Just doesn't seem right, does it? Bob turned to us and said, What's his name? Anne looked at me and then said, We were thinking of calling him Robert. Bob smiled, sat at the edge of the bed. He nodded gently and said, Well, you could do worse. I said, Well, it's either that or Sasquatch jelly bean. Bob considered the choices and said, Well, I would definitely go with Sasquatch. Anne said, I think I like Robert. It was my grandfather's name, and we never knew a Robert that wasn't special. Bob smiled and said, well, if you don't go with Sasquatch, Robert is nice. Bob took another look, hugged me, and bid us farewell. Anne's doctor came in to check on mother and child, and Annie said, 
we could fill out the forms now. We have a name for the baby. That morning, we filled out the paperwork, and the stranger we were taking home with us was to be Robert Alexander Tobolowsky. I told Anne one of the advantages of this name is that whenever he wrote it down, he'd be able to practice the entire alphabet. Later that morning, we got a call from Marina Sargente. Marina was a friend and director, and before the baby was born, Anne and I were doing a movie called Mirror, Mirror. It was a horror film, and Anne played a real estate woman who luckily happened to be pregnant. They were able to get Karen Black, one of the stars, in for the day, and they wondered if Anne could come in and shoot. Anne explained that she had just given birth. She didn't have a stomach anymore. Marina said, that's okay. They would send a limo over to the hospital, stick a pillow under her shirt, shoot her out quickly, and get her back in time for the next feeding. Anne thought this was hilarious and agreed. So she hobbled down to the limo, and the day after she gave birth, she was working on mirror, mirror, with a pillow up under her shirt. When Anne got back, our room had the addition of two large bouquets, one from my sister Barbara and one from John Badham and Company. I couldn't help but smile. Almost fired, almost drowned, almost eaten by vegetarian piranhas, and still I got flowers. All in all, you can't beat life. It's so much better than all the alternatives. The next morning, we were getting ready to leave the hospital when our doctor arrived and told us something was terribly wrong with Robert's blood tests. There was something called the AOB incompatibility. That's when the mother's blood type is O and the baby's blood is type A or B or AB, and antibodies from the mother's blood start attacking and destroying the baby's blood cells and even the baby's internal organs if the case is severe. The treatment required that Robert be taken away immediately, taken to the newborn ICU, put in an incubator with ultraviolet lights. The light had the ability to neutralize some of the toxins in his blood. And sometimes after a few days, the baby's liver can kick in before there's any terrible anemia or liver damage. In a worst-case scenario, a liver transplant is needed. Suddenly, the flowers and the sunshine cease to be of comfort. We watched him being taken away. Anne stopped the nurse and asked where she was going to stay. The nurse said there were no provisions for parents in the ICU. Anne said she was not going home without her baby. The nurse continued and said there were rooms in the hospital that could be rented by the day for families of critically ill patients. We took the room. Anne stayed with Robert day and night. She took him out of the incubator and nursed him every four hours. Other than feeding, we weren't allowed to pick him up, but we could touch him through a hole in the side of the incubator, rub his back, stroke his head. The day came when I had to go back to Canada to finish the film. We were in the ICU. I checked my watch. I kissed Anne. I said goodbye to Robert, kissed the top of the incubator. As I left, I turned back and saw Anne in her chair next to the incubator. She looked at me and put her hand through the hole, gently rubbing Robert's back. And now we were three. As I left the ICU, our doctor was heading in to check on Robert. I thanked her for all of her efforts. She shook my hand with determination and told me not to worry. She had a good feeling about this one. I looked at Robert in the incubator, so helpless and small, and I looked in our doctor's eyes one last time 
praying that today would be her day, a day when all of her training made sense, a day she would tell her children about, a day she would never forget. That was The Stranger, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can reach you this week if they'd like to? Absolutely. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is tobolowskyfiles.com. That's T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. You could find my email there, where to get a hold of me on Facebook and Twitter. And also I should mention that now, again, on uh, iTunes... We are there. Birthday Party is now on iTunes. If anybody uh, feels so inclined, if they want to see the movie, it's right there with one click. Yeah, if you want to find it, just Google Stephen Tobolowsky's... I'm sorry, uh, search on iTunes for Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party uh, or just search for Stephen Tobolowsky and you can buy the movie that inspired the podcast, The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, You can find everything else I do at SlashFilm.com. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Have a great week, guys. Adios.